0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this episode about being so good that they can't ignore you, I want to take a second to remind you to listen past the outro of the episode so you can hear our mastering engineer Brandon and his secret message that will hopefully make you laugh or make you think. And the other thing I want to do is thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass-playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound that we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach & Selmer, Eastman & Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even had vintage and consignment instruments available as well. From now until December 4th, if you use the code RECIPE at checkout, you can get 10% off of Karen Houghton and Janet Nye's French horn education book called RECIPE for Success, and I wanna, I'll want to i put a link in the bio for a virtual equipment consultation video, sample video that I did with Derek Wright, one of the co-owners at Houghton Horns, to demonstrate exactly what it looks like to talk to one of the members of Houghton Horns to get some information about a new instrument or some of the struggles you might be having. They're really knowledgeable, and I think it's a really great service that they offer. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, it's going to be just me. I uh, had a few guests, possible guests, lined up, and they did not end up happening. And so uh, I instead today am going to talk to you about a book I just read called So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Uh this is a pretty amazing book at least for me and kind of the things I've been thinking about right now and uh as we'll sort of dive in this book the premise of this book really uh, has helped me understand the gold method in a in a new way. And I wanted to share that with you as well to help all of you who are interested in practice organization and some of these ideas that I've been sharing for a long time now uh, to help you understand from this new perspective to give it even more a weight and help you understand uh, if it's something that you haven't engaged with, the gold method that is, uh, maybe that it is actually for you and I just haven't done a good job explaining it. So uh, this book... Uh, the sort of back of the book says, follow your passion is bad career advice. Find out what you should do instead. And and that's pretty much the whole thing. We have this idea that we will find things in life we are passionate about, and then we will go do those things. We will go find out how to do those things, and then we'll have a happy and fulfilling life. Uh, I've even caught myself saying it sometimes, ta- some I guess I've been saying that, uh, you know, you think about music students who uh, are don't seem to be passionate about music. They don't seem to practice as much as they, quote, should. Uh, I think that's a terrible way to talk about it, but you all probably know what I mean. And this idea is like, well, you know, if they're not willing to put in the work in the practice room, well, maybe they should find something that they are willing to put that kind of work in on and go do that. Other Another way to say that is find something they're passionate about. And so he basically studied a whole bunch of different people who have careers that – um, whether it's, whether it makes them a lot of money or not seems to be less important than, uh, are they satisfied? Are they passionate about their career? And then to figure out what happened or how that happened. And so he comes up with this passion hypothesis is the key to occupational happiness is to first figure out what you're passionate about and then find a job that matches this passion. Uh, that's the passion hypothesis. That's what a lot of us think, and a lot of us have believed, and he's going to argue that that's actually not a good way to do it. And he does that by saying three different things here. Number one, career passions are rare. He's kind of found that a lot of people don't actually have any idea what they want to do with their life. They all, They do a bunch of different things, but this idea that each one of us has this innate passion that's brewing underneath and we just have to find it doesn't seem to actually be as true as we think it is. The next one is that uh passion can take time to build and he he referenced this study in the book about how uh a researcher looked at, at people who were school administrators and tried to figure out how they felt about their job did they feel like it was a job did they feel like it was a career did they feel like it was a calling and how did they sort of uh identify with their job I guess and it seems like the people who were the most passionate about their jobs were simply the ones who had been there the longest. In this kind of tracks, they had been there long enough to become more and more competent at their job, and that allowed them to feel like, yeah, like I can do this, and it's enjoyable to do things we're good at. You know, I had a student in in college. I'm going to interview him on the podcast sometime soon here, hopefully. Uh, he played the trumpet, and he really just disliked the trumpet, and so he didn't put a lot of effort into it. And he wasn't the most gifted; he had a lot of struggles. He sort of had an ambusher change that he didn't really ever really fully come through. So, I remember having a talk with him one time, and it, and he was just saying, "I really don't like this. I'm not good at it. It's not fun or anything like that." And I was just saying, "Well, like, you don't know that you don't like it because you don't have a level of competency that allows you to figure out like." Once you become good at something, do you feel differently? I can say this in my own life. When I I used to try to play basketball and I hated it because I just like couldn't shoot the ball and make it in the hoop. And then my friend Will Baker just was like, here, try to shoot the basketball like this and actually explain how to shoot a basket. And now it's much more enjoyable for me to play basketball with my kids and stuff because I actually can make it every once in a while. I'm not LeBron James by any means, but it's more enjoyable. And so I realized, well, the reason I didn't like to do this thing is not because I'm not passionate about it. It's just because I wasn't good at it. And so I wonder this idea of we're not passionate about certain things. How related is that to the fact that we're not good at it or we perceive that we're not good at it? I would say for my former student, that was the case. As he is a musician, he plays bass in a band, and he writes music, and it's amazing. So clearly music is something that he is very passionate about. Uh, The trumpet just never spoke to him enough to put in the kind of work necessary, and that's fine. That's okay. I'm just sort of commenting on the idea that I don't think it was fair for him to say, I don't like this given that he never really got good enough to decide. So there's that. And then um, I think this this third point speaks to what I was just saying too. In the book, he makes a third point about passion, saying passion is a side effect of mastery. And he brings up this, this theory called self-determination theory, where your sort of happiness or your satisfaction in life, self-determination theory would say that it's a combination of Three different things: your autonomy, or do you have control over your time? Do you feel like your actions are important? If you have those those things, then you are more likely to be happier with your career choice or your life or whatever. Right? Competence again, we just talked about that: being good at what you do. The better you are, the more uh, the better you'll feel about it. And then the third thing is relatedness or connection to others. And this is obvious, right? If you enjoy your workplace or you enjoy the people around you in any social setting, you're more likely to be happy. We kind of recognize that. And this idea that reading this really got me thinking about one of the deep-seated desires of mine with the gold method and, it, it, and what it was born out of was I had an incredible collegiate community family, if you want to call it that, uh, both in undergrad and in grad school. I was very close to my my trumpet studio mates and other musicians in the music school, and I really did actually feel like they were very much uh, a family to me. And so I had a high level of satisfaction. It's one of the things that made me want to go into a career in music, because I thought a job is going to be just like this, except for I'm going to get paid money. That's not exactly true. I know that now, obviously, but it was the community aspect of that was so important. And I bet you most of you listening uh, can identify with that to some degree. Uh, This idea of building community in a studio being super important, at least for musicians. I'm sure... For non-musicians listening to this, just you having a, a, a close friend group is the kind of the equivalent. Uh, Wiff Rudd wrote an entire book about how we build community to drive happiness and satisfaction uh, from students. Not only happiness and satisfaction from students' experience in school, but then also being able to make these ties that kind of bring you as a part of a, a lifelong family as well. Now, interestingly, that would check one of the three things. Of the self determination theory that would say if you're in a good studio in a school, for we'll just keep it in this kind of context, uh, and, and you guys are and you're all close and you get along and all that kind of stuff, that means you've got one of these three things checked. Interestingly, in college, you we were there's nothing, there's no sorry, in college, you are not autonomous, you really don't get the Especially during the day, you don't get to choose how you spend your time. You go to this class, you go to that class, you go to your studio uh, teacher, you know your lessons, and then you have your ensembles. And uh, generally speaking, you're almost always preparing something that somebody else has told you to play. This is, of course, what you've you've gone to school for. But you're not really in charge. Generally speaking, at least I wasn't, of the things that I'm doing and this is interesting because that would be a strike against one of these three things saying that our lives especially in college are not autonomous and then the third thing would be uh competence and i would say this is going to be varying this is going to be varying based on who the person is and what what level they're at and how far they in, are the, into their development but i would say an important through line no matter what your v- level of competence is I think it's important to understand, do you understand how to gain more competence in what you do? And this is the gold method to a T. And the reason why I care so much about this is everything was great until I left school. And then I didn't understand how to manage my own autonomy because like I had never really done it. Those are things you just learn in life. It's no big deal, but I didn't have that. And then I realized that I had a lot of competence in my ability as an instrumentalist and a musician, but I don't, I didn't, I I didn't have Uh, The ability to gain more competence, at least to a way that that I felt like I was in control of. And so those two things weren't necessarily there for me when I left. And then I lost that community aspect. I went from I'm hanging around my best friends in the entire world to I'm spending most of my time alone in my house, either practicing or, you know, watching House. You know what I mean? It's it's a very interesting difference, sh- uh, different shift, and it's why I care so deeply. Is the Gold Method is something that made me 100% autonomous, and I'm the. one, I mean, of course, I'm at this life stage, but. I can choose what I do generally speaking but I'm 100% autonomous with what I do and my competence is is something I feel I am in control of increasing. And this is huge. Uh, to me this is huge. And so if you're in school right now and you've heard me talk about the gold method maybe maybe that's not something you really care very deeply about but try to place yourself you know 3 you know 1 to 3 years from now when you're out of school How are you going to feel? If you have a strong community of people around you and you don't have that anymore, what are you going to fall back on? Because the self-determination theory is saying these three things combined will lead towards satisfaction in life, and your career, etc. So it's just something worth thinking about, in my opinion, just, you know, where are we going to be? Are we going to be set up to be successful in the next stage of life? All right. I wrote down here. And most jobs, as you become better at what you do, not only do you get the sense of accomplishment that comes from being good, but you're typically also rewarded with more control over your responsibilities. This is something I wrote down because it's interestingly not true in an orchestra. In an orchestra, you win your job and then you get tenure. And then it's sort of like that's the stage that you're at for the rest of your career Yeah, you can try to negotiate for more money. And in some orchestras, that totally works. Uh, But in other places, you're sort of like at the level that you were at when you got tenure in terms of your career path at that point. So if I win my job in the Alabama Symphony Orchestra at 26 years old or whatever, I don't even remember how old I was, but 26 years old, and then I get tenure at 28 years old, that's possible that from 28 until I was 60 or 70 – I would basically be doing the same job without any opportunity to move up within my own sort of job, right? Unless I want a, quote, bigger job. And then you would just have that problem as you went ahead. And yeah, you have a lot of control over... Uh, what how you practice and all of that type of stuff we have no control over our jobs somebody else markets for us somebody else decides what music we're gonna play a conductor tells us how to play it a lot of the time we got to show up when we're told to show up it's 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 like we, we don't have as much autonomy. And as you get better in other jobs, it's like, great, you're doing a great job. We are going to trust you with a little bit more responsibility and that you can do it. But that doesn't necessarily exist. And I, I wonder, the reason I bring it up is I wonder if this is a a reason why a lot of orchestral musicians are, are not happy. I mean, I, I don't mean to drop that bomb if that's something you're unaware of, but it's you don't have to search very far and, and you know, to, to find out that there's a lot of Um, people in orchestras who are not necessarily totally satisfied with every aspect of their job. So um, I know that I'm becoming, uh, I'm gaining a better perspective and I'm finding more enjoyment in my job, but it didn't come from the job. It came from me. It came from growth that's happened within me, not necessarily because my job situation changed. So um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to move on a little bit because I want to get into these different um, – I want to get into these different things. He took the title of the book from a a quote that Steve Martin gave – or a piece of advice that Steve Martin gave on The Charlie Rose Show uh, when Charlie Rose was asking him about advice that Steve Martin has for uh, – uh, succeeding in the entertainment industry actually want to play that clip really quick right here so you can just hear it straight from steve martin and then we'll we'll go from there someone stood up in an audience somewhere and said to you you know how do you be successful Mm -hmm. and you said you have to be undeniably good at something well it it really is this when people ask me say how do you you know how do you make it in show business or whatever and what I always tell them, I've said it many years, and nobody ever takes note of it because it's not the answer they want it to hear. What they want to hear is, here's how you get an agent, here's how you write a script, here's how you do this. here's it. But I always say, be so good they can't ignore you. And I just think that if somebody's thinking, how can I be really good, people are going to come to you. It's much easier than uh, doing it that way than going to cocktail parties. (laughs) All right, so you can hear Steve Martin acknowledge that that advice, to be so good that they can't ignore you, is often not what people want to hear. People want to hear, do this, and then do this, and then do this, and then you'll be successful. And it's interesting, I remember very well, I won the 2012 Ellsworth Smith Trumpet Competition, and then I went to a, um, a a concert I was playing, uh, I don't know, the next year or something like that with the Fountain City Brass Band, and Jens Lindemann was a soloist. Jens is a famous trumpet soloist, for those that don't know. And Jens has also won the, the Ellsworth Smith competition a number of years ago, and so I was like, oh, this is so awesome. I'm going to get some advice from Jens on what I need to do to be able to win or to be able to have a solo career. And what I was expecting Jens to say was, well, first you got to go ahead and make a CD and then you got to do this and then you got to contact these people and then you do this and then you do that and then everything's going to be awesome. But that's not what Jens said. It's, it's like so fascinating to think at this stage back on what Jens said in the context of this conversation because I was so mad when I got this information, this advice from Jens. Jens told me two things. He said... Don't be in a hurry and you should teach people. That's what he said. Don't be in a hurry and you should take on students and teach. And it's interesting now that I think about that, because that's especially the don't be in a hurry part. That's advice I could, I wish I could give myself over and over and over and over and over again. I've so struggled with putting the cart before the horse. Um, uh, one funny story about that is when I auditioned for the Chicago Symphony in 2017, it's the very first the, the first of two auditions that I took. I uh went and played for Barbara Butler. I was I wanted to get some feedback from her and and feel confident that I could go in there and do well and I played for Barbara and all that stuff was good and then you know I went to dinner with Barbara. And I I was interested. I don't think Kathleen and I may have been dating at this point. I can't exactly remember, but I don't think we were dating yet, but I was just sort of in a a place in my life where I was maybe not as keen on pursuing, you know, principal trumpet in an orchestra like Chicago. Like, I don't think the motivation was the same at that point as it was when I was younger, but like, I had to take this audition because these auditions don't come up very often. So I was just asking her, you know, like, I don't feel like maybe I'm in the same place in my life as I used to be. And, you know, what if I don't? You know, what if what if I don't like what if I won the job and then like the work schedule would be like too much or, you know, what if it's like, you know, I don't like living in Chicago. I don't even know. I don't remember what questions I was asking her, but I was kind of asking her a whole bunch of what if questions looking for her advice. And Barbara's advice was, I think you should win the job first. (laughs) and she was right i didn't win the job i wasn't even close these are conversations that i wasn't i, I never was going to have to deal with but because i was putting the cart before the horse i was getting ahead of myself and it wasn't good so um it's it's interesting to think about these types of things these types of conversations in the context of this book because one of the things he says is we really should aim to put aside the question of whether the job we are doing right now is actually our true passion, and instead we should turn our focus toward becoming so good that people can't ignore us. I'm, I'm sort of changing the 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 um subjects. It's, it's he says so good they can't ignore you, but you know that's what Barbara was saying. She's I think you should win the job first. Like put your focus on the thing that's right in front of you. Don't worry so much if you're going to be passionate about living in Chicago or playing in a big orchestra that works all the time or if you'll be stressed or worried or nervous or anything like that. Don't worry about that. Worry about winning the job. be about being so good they can't ignore you. And I, I, I would be lying if that was the only time in my life that I've really struggled with this. And it's it's sort of been pervasive in my social media presence and and with the podcast and then now with becoming a coach and trying to release things about the gold method and the gold method app you know I can get frustrated at seeing other players who have bigger jobs or um, people who have more connections than I do I can get frustrated at seeing these people be able to do things and 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 it seems like they get a lot of uh of Interest in a lot of people who are willing to, you know, pay them money to do the things that they want to do. And for a long time, I would be upset about that. I would see them as competition. And instead, what I should have been thinking is, well, how do I get so good that people can't ignore me? How do I speak about what I do in such a way, and how do I be able to back it up that when people are like, "That is for me," and then when they actually work with me, I follow through, and it's the real deal. And that's what he calls this craftsman mindset. And the craftsman mindset gets you what he calls career capital. So this is like one of the most interesting parts of this discussion to me is career capital here is this idea that they are, they're, they're, it's basically our skills. It's our abilities and we build this. And he says, instead of it just being like, Oh, I'm this good. He's saying now you've accrued what is called career capital and we can trade our career capital. For jobs or things that we desire, so um, jobs that give us happiness or jobs give us jobs that uh, are, bring us satisfaction and give us control and maybe are are related to like some sort of mission, these jobs are rare and they're valuable and he's arguing we need something rare and valuable to give in return so. Instead of focusing on how do I get this job and how do I do that and how do I do this, his argument is you need to spend a long time building up career capital so that you can trade it later on for more control, more autonomy, more of a mission. You can make pivots and it will work. And it's kind of the unsexy answer to all of this is like, just put your head down and do the work. And, you know, I think about this in terms of musicians and I, I mean, I'm not sure where everybody who's listening is, but I can only speak for myself. But, you know, I spent a long time trying to prove to myself that I could get where I wanted to go. And I'm not, I mean, on the scale of what I wanted when I was like 18 or 19 or 20 or 21, I'm not where I wanted to be yet. I was thinking New York Philharmonic or Chicago Symphony, as I was saying. So the fact that I'm not there yet, I could, you know, my 21-year-old self could deem me now a failure. But interestingly, what if it's just that I haven't still yet built up enough career capital to get to that point? I'm not sure if that's something that I want to pursue or if that's where my values are now and that's okay. And, you know, we can all change our minds. But that's kind of interesting to me thinking about it that way. You know, thinking about it as when you are in school and you are practicing, you are not just getting better at your instrument, you are acquiring career capital that you can use to trade for things that you want later on. Do you want gigs that pay you money? You need career capital. Yes, we th- we know we need to be good enough at our instruments, but what other aspects of career capital are involved? We need to be able to be on time. We need to be able to make sure that we're prepared. We need to be someone that people enjoy working with. Like all of these things could be viewed instead of just like, oh, I have to do this or I hope it happens. We could be purposefully thinking how to develop this career capital. And um he writes here, the craftsman mindset. So I, d- I guess I didn't define the craftsman mindset, but he defines it as a focus on the value you are producing in your job. So it's a hundred percent a process-oriented mindset, right? Craftsman mindset. What is the value I am creating? As a musician, we could think to ourselves, you know, I don't want to say, I don't think we should say it as how good or how bad am I at my instrument. I think it's much more uh much better to say something along the lines of what skills have I developed and what skills have I yet to develop? And then saying the craftsman mindset. So with a focus on the value we're producing and trying to become so good that people can't ignore us is the best mindset for developing career capital. Uh, the opposite mindset, he says, is the passion mindset, where we focus on what our job offers us, where we get into a job and we say, well, there's all these good things, but then there's these bad things and these bad things kind of are terrible. And so I want to get out of here and get myself into a situation where everything is perfect. And anyone, it's just not going to happen. Every, like. We all know this. It's not going to happen. There's good things and there's bad things about everything. I had fooled myself a few years ago into thinking that the solution to whatever problems I may have encountered in my own job, the solution was to leave. That's not the right solution. The solution isn't to say everything's wrong with my job and I'm fine. The solution was for me to put my head down. And just to continue getting better and not worry so much about what is my job offering me and is my job creating happiness? Like, yes, if we're in an environment that's horrible and when the people are toxic, if you want to use that word, sure, absolutely. There could be some or a lot of justification for, for leaving. But if you're leaving the job and you have nothing to pivot to, it may not be the smartest move. And so he he goes over that. I'm not going to talk about this, but he does talk about this in his his book, just these examples of people who were like, I don't want to do this job anymore because I don't like it. I don't feel like it's fulfilling a mission or these people or whatever. And so I'm going to completely pivot and it does not work out too well for them. So for the next, the last little bit here, I want to just focus on He he puts a lot of emphasis, an entire chapter on this concept of deliberate practice, which is coined by uh, a man named Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson describes deliberate practice as activity designed typically by a teacher for the sole purpose of effectively improving specific aspects of an individual's performance. So this is so huge because this is how we become so good. That people can't ignore us. And he goes it over in the book, but I'm telling you right now that this is what the gold method is. The gold method and its understanding of the principles and then the, the applications that exist in the gold method app are deliberate practice. Everything I'm trying to talk about, everything I'm trying to share is trying to help us shift our focus from just putting in the work and just going through the motions to having specific reasons for doing things. Having designed routines that meet that demand and then understanding exactly what we are trying to focus on to accomplish our goals. And one of the things I, re- I want to point out here. Because it's so fascinating because it sort of it's, it answers a question I've had. Yeah. He talks about this 10,000 hour rule, right? This is Malcolm Gladwell's outliers. It's saying that it takes like 10,000 hours to master something. And so one question I've always had is, is that actually true? You know, if I play a trumpet and I spend 10,000 hours, you know, with like the mouthpiece off to the side and. (laughs) just like hardly making any quality sound, am I going to achieve mastery in 10,000 hours? Like Clearly, the quality of work you put into it plays some role. And so he mentioned a guy named, or a a research psychologist, excuse me, from Florida State University named Neil Charnas, who studied 400 chess players, and he wanted to observe not only how long people worked, but also what type of work they did. This is a study done over more than 10 years because they actually observed these individuals for 10,000 hours. And so both groups, like I said, practiced for 10,000 hours. And so they assumed that what happened was some people after 10,000 hours were sort of like amateur, like intermediate players. And some people became grandmasters and they're like, well, what's the difference? How is that possible? And so he he sought to figure that out. All right. So that's the first step. The second step is this discussion of these two types uh, of approaching how to learn chess. There's one called tournament play, which is uh, you just practiced. Oh, you you did lots of tournaments. You, you entered in a whole bunch of them and they thought this was good because it provided practice with tight time limits and working through distractions. You're basically getting tons of practice doing the thing that you want to do. And then the other group or the other way of learning what's called serious study where they pored over books and they used teachers to help them identify weaknesses. And when they originally asked people, and I should, you know, when you're thinking about as I'm talking, think to yourself, which one do you think would lead towards a grandmaster and which one do you think would lead towards more of an intermediate? And they, well, what they found was that serious study far outweighed tournament play and what it led to. The grandmaster's they spent five times more time, I guess, uh, with serious study. So 5,000 of their 10,000 hours were spent with serious study as opposed to the intermediate or sort of amateur players. They did 1,000 of the 10,000 hours. That's shocking. That's shocking. That's this idea that like just doing it, just performing, is not going to necessarily make us better. But we are constantly. I remember in school, it's like one performance after another. It's like you have your band concert and your orchestra concert, and then you got to do your jury, and you have a master class every week where you got to be ready to play something. And like you know, hopefully you have this other study. But like as we all know, we have other classes where. Every single t- every single class treats it as they're the most important thing. So it can be it's kind of like maybe difficult to get some serious study in at least half of what you do in the majority of what's designed. And then when you get out of school, tons of people are guided by the performances that they have. So the repertoire they're working on, the things that they're practicing is just what's coming up next. The pandemic like blew this up. That's why the pandemic blew it up is because there's nothing to prepare for. So people didn't know what to do because they didn't have concerts to prepare for. They were like, well, what do I do? What, how do I, how do I fix this? And then there were some people who had systems in place that allowed them where they actually, I mean, Tom Hooten is a great example of this. You hear him talk about how much better he feels he got over the pandemic. Well, he was set up in the way that he thinks about things. He was set up to actually thrive without ex- people telling him what to play because he could finally do some actual serious study that he wasn't afforded with his job, at least not in the way that he could do during the pandemic. And one of the things that Charnas said about serious study, Charnas is that psychologist who did this study on chess players. He wrote about serious study, that materials can be deliberately chosen or adapted such that the problems to be solved are at a level that is appropriately challenging. When you're doing tournament play, you're likely to face someone who's either much better or much worse than you, and that's going to limit the overall improvement. That's fascinating to me. That's so fascinating to me. Because with the way I talk about the gold method and the way I've worked with my clients and things like that is to say, we're going to design a routine that's challenging for you to do, but that you can be successful with so you can build success into the way that you practice so that. Success is just the way that you do things. It's not just like a, oh, like I practiced enough and I magically got better. It's like, no, I purposefully put habits in place that would make it so I could be more successful in my endeavors and my performances. Is it going to lead to total perfection? No. But what's the alternative? Frustrating performances that don't go the way you think that they can go. And that's going to get into your mind. That's going to start telling you, Every failed performance is going to tell you that that's what you do. You fail performances. Well, if all of your practice sessions 100% of the time were building you up, you would have probably a lot better chance, I think, of being able to have more success in your performances. And I, I, I mean, it's probably hard to like, you know use me as an example because I'm sure you know I won a job you know eight years ago with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra or seven years ago or something like that. Um, I don't even know how long ago it was, but you know, I won a job all that time ago, right and um so I'm sure at that point people were like, "Oh, like he must be great, but just like Tom Hooton, I, I had some issues I needed to work out. And some of them, like not necessarily fundamental, but some of the things that I worked out over the pandemic have greatly increased my overall consistency. And so I, I feel I can, I, I'm sort of a testament to this as well. I feel I'm doing things that I wasn't able to do before. And because I actually got to dig down on the process and then design a routine that would allow me to be successful at the level that I was at. It's intentionally designed. It's not just like, oh, I'll just play this today and I'll play this today. It's everything is intentional. So, and then there's this quote from Anders Ericsson that I think is beautiful. He says, most individuals who start as active professionals change their behavior and increase their performance for a limited time until they reach an acceptable level. Beyond this point, however, further improvements appear to be unpredictable, and the number of years of work is a poor predictor of attained performance. It's like so humbling to read something like that. To me, it's so humbling because it's so true. When we are practicing and we are playing for the next performance... We are satisfied with our skills as so long as we can play the repertoire we're trying to play. And so what happens is, you know, what happens when you can play all the repertoire? That will happen at some point. What happens when you can do that? You stop getting better. When you reach your goal, unless you set a new one, you stop getting better. And so in general, I think this is another argument for the gold method is we're constantly setting new goals. We're constantly thinking about we're we're satisfied with the work that we've done previously, but we know that we have more work to do. So um, finally, he writes here, deliberate practice might provide the key to quickly becoming so good they can't ignore you. And there's all sorts of examples in the book that he talks about um about this with deliberate practice, but I just can't really think of any better way to talk about having success in our field but and, and music. You know, we many musicians are so good they can't ignore you. And we that's the thing that we're trying we we try to share, that we're doing this thing in such a way that, you know, it's the highest possible level. And I think that's awesome. I think it's really great. But, like, the simplicity of that message for all of us, I think, is beautiful. Like, what makes, you know, Chris Martin or Tom Hooten or Tom Rolf's or, you know, like, you could even go to the, you know, Wynton Marsalis or Sean Jones or John, uh, or sorry, um, what's his name? Jim, James Morrison. What makes these trumpet players special? Well, when you hear them, you can't ignore them. You know, they're so good, you can't ignore them. And so it simplifies the process into, am I so good that people can't ignore me? If the answer is no, which it is for most of us, we continue working and we work with deliberate practice. It's not going to happen randomly. We don't randomly become so good people can't ignore you. We have processes. You can listen to my podcast episode with Jacqueline Rainey. She uses that same exact Steve Martin quote in talking about how she prepared for her, um, her auditions. And she's been incredibly successful she won principal in naples she won a job in the new new orleans philharmonic she won a job as like i think third in atlanta and then she won assistant in la and then she's now principal horn in atlanta she's been incredibly successful and that's her motto is i was just trying to be so good people couldn't ignore ignore me so um i don't know these are just some thoughts i wanted to share There's obviously there's not a ton of structure but Hopefully these um, thoughts are interesting for you as well. And they kind of get your mind spinning about how, you know, if you are in the practice room and you are spinning your wheels and you are struggling and or you're having performances that just don't go the way you want or you're inconsistent from day to day or you have big dreams of wanting to have a career in music or to 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 play in the Chicago Symphony like I did your best bet in all of those cases is to put your head down figure out how to do deliberate practice and there are people and resources to help you do that you got to assume that it's possible for you to actually learn that and just Focus on becoming so good that they can't ignore you. And like, here's the most sobering aspect of it is it's going to take a long time. According to Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. Now, I don't know if 10,000 hours is the point, but it's going to take longer than a week. It's going to take longer than a month. Probably going to take longer than a year. Like we need to settle in. We need to settle in (laughs) for a long haul here in terms of being able to develop ourselves as players, develop ourselves as musicians to the point where we are so good that people can't ignore us. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode has, like I said, been thought-provoking for you. Uh, If you have any comments or thoughts, feel free to reach out to me at thatsnotspit.com. There's a contact page there or That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share this on social media so others can hear it and think about some of these concepts for themselves. I'd like to thank Brandon Yokum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. In case you missed it, Thanksgiving is tomorrow. A time for family, thankfulness, and for me, a time to really count the number of socks that I've lost in the laundry this year. I'll be counting my blessings too, mostly that I still have some socks to wear, and add that to an ugly sweater, and there's nothing more that I really need this holiday season. So... To you and yours, happy Thanksgiving, happy sock hunting, and remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.